0: Christ our hope in life and death. This is what we remember on Resurrection Sunday and Easter morning as we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, we don't have to only remember that on Easter Sunday. In fact, the very reason we meet on Sunday, the first day of the week, is because that's our remembrance of our risen Lord who rose from the grave on a Sunday morning and indeed, it's a Sunday morning on which we encounter Mary on the way to the tomb. And so, again, if you have your Bible with you today, you can open to John chapter 20, where we'll study together the text that we already read as Mary approaches the tomb. A few things I want to point out as we begin to dig into this text. I want you to notice a few themes that are going to come up as we study it together. First, you're going to notice that the words see or saw, not see saw, but see or saw come up frequently through this text. In fact, verses 1, 5, 6, 8, 12, 14, and 18 all mention this idea of seeing something. This is about what they saw on that Sunday morning, and something that they saw changed their lives forever. This is also what we could call the final sign in the Gospel of John. John has had a number of signs to point us to the identity of Christ, and as we'll study in the coming weeks, it's the very purpose he wrote the book, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in His name. Life because He rose from the dead. This is the seventh sign, and Jesus pointed out that it was coming all the way back in chapter 2, when there, after cleansing the temple, the Pharisees asked him for a sign. What sign will you give us to prove that you have the right to do this, to prove that you're the Messiah? And there, already in John chapter 2, Jesus said to them, oh, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it. And they think, well, it took years to build this temple. How could you do this? And John inserts a little comment to remind us he was speaking of his own body. Because he would rise from the grave. So here is the seventh sign, the one that seals the deal beyond any shadow of a doubt. Jesus, indeed, is the risen Christ, the Lord, in whom alone is salvation. So it's the first day of the week there in John 20, verse 1. Sunday. Sunday morning, early, even before the sun has fully risen, the darkness still lingers as Mary approaches the tomb. And with that darkness still in the air, it's likely that she didn't even go in the tomb. She only sees from a distance that the stone has been rolled away. Probably was still dark enough that even if she had looked in, she wouldn't have seen much because it was down below the ground level a little bit, a few steps down, and it would have been a dark area, and so she probably couldn't have seen. But she realizes that the stone has been rolled away. She sees there in verse 1 that it's been moved. And so she runs to Simon Peter and to the unnamed uh, disciple that we know is John, the author of this gospel. So she runs to them and she tells them her assumption at the end of verse 2. They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. She makes an assumption. She jumps to a conclusion. The stone is rolled away, and I think Mary is so overwhelmed with grief. What, What option is there except that if the stone's been rolled away, somebody must have taken his body she says they have taken him away, and probably she's thinking of the main antagonist through this whole thing, the chief priests, who from the beginning have been seeking to put Jesus to death. And now she thinks there's some other aspect to this plot. They must have stolen his body and taken it away. And so in Mary's mind, things have gone from bad to worse. Not only is Jesus dead, but now his body is missing. Now, here's another interesting little thread that you'll see weaved through this text. The theme of location or even distance. You'll see words like where and away that come up frequently through this text. Mary not only senses that Jesus is dead, but now she feels as if he's missing. He's gone. His body has been taken away. He's distant from her. That will be part of what happens when Jesus is there behind her and calls her name. So things have gone from bad to worse. Jesus is not only dead, but now he's missing. Of course, she could have known what was going to happen. The disciples could have known what was going to happen. Jesus had told them on a number of occasions during his time with them that it was necessary for him to die and to die. Rise, He had predicted this. In fact, Mary had experienced it quite closely. She was there when Jesus had uh, healed Lazarus, raised him from the dead, and called him from the tomb. Jesus, or Mary knew the power that Jesus had. And yet here she jumps to the wrong conclusion. Her, her faith has been closed in by her grief. She's decided she can't hope any longer. She's in despair. And now the empty tomb doesn't speak of the resurrection to her. It speaks of theft and distance from her Lord. I wonder what assumptions have been keeping you from seeing the risen Lord. Well, Peter and John hear Mary's conclusion And they're not sure what to think. And so what else can they do except as well to go to the tomb and to see for themselves? And so in verse 3, they go out and John with him and they're going to the tomb. And verses 4 and 5 give us uh, a few little extra details here. This is clearly an eyewitness. And John doesn't need to tell us this, but just for fun, he inserts it that uh, he made it to the tomb before Peter did. They both ran as fast as they could. I think it's a reminder to us that this is urgent, right? You really don't outrun someone unless you're trying to get there as fast as you can. Normally, you just run together. But here, they want to see as quickly as possible what happened, and we learn that John's the faster of the two of them. So, of course, they didn't go on to be track stars or anything, so it doesn't really matter. But uh, a little detail of an eyewitness that's helpful for us as we read this text. They're getting there as fast as they can. John arrives first, and we read in verse 5 that John stoops down. Again, tombs were often just a couple steps below ground level, a little bit lower. And so John leans down to peer in the dark tomb. And it's got to be a little bit lighter now than it was when Mary had first visited the tomb. And so he's able to see as he peeks in that there are some linen cloths lying there. In fact, that's all he sees in the tomb are those linen cloths. But he does not go in until bold Peter. Peter arrives on the scene and you can imagine them breathing heavily. They've been running as fast as they can and so Peter arrives and it doesn't surprise us that Peter goes right in, down the steps and into the tomb he goes and he's looking around and exploring as we see there in verse 6. And he notices as well that the linen cloths are lying there but Peter notices something else. And John, peering in from the outside, notices that Peter notices something else. Peter, with the close-up view, notices not only are the linen cloths there that would have wrapped Jesus' body, but there's also the larger piece of cloth, the handkerchief, the piece that would have gone around Jesus' head and bound his jaw in place. It's folded and lying in a separate place. And so they both observe this, Peter from the inside, John from the outside. Finally then, in verse 8, John decides to enter the tomb as well. And there's our key word again, he saw and believed. And The word believed can even take the sense of like a growing belief. He, he began to believe, he started to get it, he started to see what was going on here. They see the grave clothes, they see the handkerchief, they start to believe. Peter notices first the handkerchief that would have been uh, a square cloth. That's a a difference between the two cloths. Usually the body was wrapped in strips of cloth. And so there's no need to fold that. In fact, it doesn't really work well to fold long strips of cloth. And they're bound so tightly that, you know, nobody was really expecting a body to uh, rise again from the dead. And so it was bound tightly. It was meant to hold everything in place. That's why, for instance, Lazarus, when he was raised, he actually had to be helped to get out of his tight binding. Jesus didn't need any help. Some surmise that maybe his body just passed through those cloths, like he will later in the text when he arrives and sees the disciples as they're hiding in their room. However it happened, Jesus didn't need any help. He rose from the grave passed through the grave cloths and then removed the one around his face and folded it and laid it there. The grave clothes proved to us a few things. First, they proved that the body was not stolen. It would have been unheard of for a thief to unwrap a body before stealing it. There is absolutely zero reason to do that. It just makes everything more difficult and it wasn't necessary if they were making up some plot to claim that Jesus rose from the dead it wasn't necessary for them to you know unwrap it so that that would have been the claim they could have made no this pure, proves pure and simple that Jesus was raised his body was not stolen number 2 it proves his resurrection was powerful Yes, he had raised Lazarus from the dead, but here, Jesus, of the strength he has in God, rises from the grave and needs no help to escape his own binding cloths and the tomb which held him. It's no trouble at all. Some mothers like to point out a third application of the folded grave clothes, that we should also fold our clothes when the laundry is done. (laughs) But that's not why Jesus folded his clothes here. This is proof. Jesus, of his own power, rose again from the grave, escaped death, escaped the tomb, and folded the cloth, and left it there knowing that shortly Peter and John would arrive at the tomb and they would see in and look and begin to understand. Wait, wait, Wait a second. <laughs> you can almost sense the gears turning in their heads as they're sort of thinking, could it really be? Do you think? I mean, how did they... The grave clothes are here. The body's not. He talked about this, and they begin to understand what really took place that morning. John points these details out, and he gives us a clue that we could not know except in verses 8 and 9, because he tells us. The other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, he saw and believed. John knows, it's his writing, it's his heart. He knows when he saw, when he looked at that folded face cloth, when he looked at the linen cloth to the side and they were separate, he he saw and he began to believe. But why is the seeing important? That's what John tells us in verse 9. Because, as yet... They did not understand or know the Scripture that He must rise again from the dead. What's John's point? John, I think, is cluing his readers in that you actually don't have to see to believe. You can know the Word. This was predicted. In fact, there are over 300 prophecies in Scripture regarding Christ's death and burial. And dozens predicting the resurrection. You can think through that as you, as you understand the unfolding of Scripture, this was predicted. And so John says, hey, you can read. You can know the Scriptures. I saw and I began to believe. And I'm telling you, reader, you can read the Scriptures and believe. But does John have the Old Testament in mind? Well, it's very possible There are such passages that imply the resurrection, like Psalm 1610 or even Psalm 22, which we studied uh, on Friday night at our Good Friday service. Even Isaiah 53 implies that this Messiah will die and, of course, have to rise as He's going to reign forever. And so, yes, we could put the pieces together from the Scriptures about the resurrection, but I think it's actually possible that John is even referring to Jesus' teaching Because Jesus has been unfolding for them the truth that he will rise from the grave. The first time is back in John chapter 2, right? When he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. But he even spoke this plainly to his disciples a number of times. And John knows that the words of Christ, if there ever were something that qualified as scripture, the very words of the word made flesh are indeed scripture. And so John says, hey, you can hear the words of Christ and believe that this is exactly what happened. And so they return to their homes, verse 10, believing, though they don't yet fully understand. You see, the empty tomb reveals the truth of His Word. So as we consider this text today, we're first going to see Jesus, the risen Lord, and believe. John's engaging the reader, encouraging us to believe as well. He says, I saw and believed because I didn't yet know the Scriptures. But you, reading this text, see the risen Lord in the text and believe. Believe that He is alive. And this first scene where Mary and then Peter and John come to the empty tomb, it reminds us, number one today, that the empty tomb reveals the truth of His Word. This is just as He said. It's no big surprise. Sure, a resurrection is a surprise, but this is exactly what the Scriptures predicted would happen. Exactly what Jesus said He would do. And so the empty tomb reveals the truth of his word. It reminds us that we can trust what he says. We can believe the words of Christ. This whole scene sort of plays out like a, like a Sherlock Holmes story. I don't know if you've ever read old Sherlock Holmes stories or it's, they've become popular in TV shows and movies and so on and so forth. But if you've ever read Sir Arthur and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and the original stories of Sherlock and Watson, uh, you can almost see this scene playing out that way. Right? They arrive at the scene, and you can imagine Inspector Lestrade bumbling around trying to figure out what happened exactly and why the grave clothes are here. And so he approaches Sherlock and says, well, we have, we have no idea who took the body or where they took it. What do you think, Sherlock? And Sherlock, of course, pauses for suspense and replies "'Yes, indeed, we will have a great deal of trouble finding the dead body "'because he's not dead at all.' "'What?' exclaims Watson. "'How did you deduce that?' Holmes replies, "'Elementary, my dear Watson. "'There's the absence of the body, the grave clothes, the folded handkerchief. "'No one stole his body. It's le- "'He left of his own volition, and on top of all that, "'he told us it was going to happen. "'Elementary, my dear Watson.'" Okay, it doesn't go quite like that. But it is just as he said. Shouldn't surprise us. He said he was going to rise. He told them the tomb would be empty. And indeed it is. And so it doesn't need to be a great surprise to us that things unfolded exactly the way he predicted. And the empty tomb reminds us of that. As they see what has happened, they believe the scriptures, the very prophecies, the predictions of the Old Testament and of Christ, that the Messiah would rise, that Jesus would rise again. Friend, do you still doubt his word? Is it really true? Is Jesus who he says he is? Maybe you see him as just a good person who got unlucky and was crucified by mistake. Well, that's not at all what he said. He said he was the Son of God, equal with the Father. He said he died for the sins of the world. He said he would rise again from the dead in three days. He said that he would be the only way of salvation. Sure enough... Everything unfolded just as He said. What will it take for you to believe His Word? Do you realize there are dozens of prophecies related to the cross, the tomb, and the resurrection? They all came true exactly as predicted. This is no mistake. This is no theatrical concoction. It's the true Word of God. Jesus is alive just as He said. So friends, in our dark times, rely on the words of Christ We look at an empty tomb and we think, oh, I have no idea what's going on. Maybe they've stolen the body. We we, we often jump to our dark assumptions about what's taken place in life. In our periods of difficulty, we just kind of jump to these dark conclusions. But the reminder of this first scene with the empty tomb is, no, the words of Christ are always true. They win, not even death can conquer what God has said. So friend, in your dark time, don't jump to those conclusions. Rely on the words of Christ. What has He said? Well, I don't understand what this health problem is in my life, but what did He say? He said He would use it to grow me, to grow my eternal reward, and to glorify His name on the earth. I can trust Him. Well, I don't understand why God feels so distant right now. But what did He say? He said, He will never leave me nor forsake me. I don't understand why... You fill in the blank. What are you facing in your life? What dark time are you approaching as you look at that empty tomb? What assumptions are you jumping to? Oh, now someone stole the body. Oh, No, friend, what did he say? What's his promise? What's his encouragement? What's his word? The word of Christ always reigns. It's always true. So stop seeing the world through unbelief. The darkness we face is often a matter only of our perspective. Start seeing the world by faith. What has he said? Mary is still at the tomb in verse 11. She must have followed Peter and John shortly after. John doesn't give us what place she came in on their race to the tomb, uh, but it was at least third place. Uh, And so there she is at the tomb waiting outside. And we're told in verse 11 that Mary is weeping. Twice in verse 11, the word weeping is mentioned. Mary stood outside the tomb weeping and as she wept she stooped down and looked into the tomb weeping becomes a key word in this scene of the risen Christ because something's going to happen to Mary's weeping so there she is weeping outside a tomb and like John she stoops down to look inside but Peter and John have left at this point and so Mary's there and she sees something different this is very intentional Angels don't just do things. God sends them to do things. So God sent two angels just for Mary. And there they are, one sitting at the head of the the table or shelf, wherever it was that Jesus had been laying, one sitting at the head and the other sitting at the feet. John's intentional to point this out in verse 12. And they say to her, Woman, why are you weeping? They must have had the appearance of men, or if they looked like angels and Mary knew they were angels, John at least doesn't spend any time uh, with the whole frightened thing, don't be afraid. You know, that typically happens with angel visions, but John skips right past that. There's something more important going on. Why are you weeping, they say. To them, this is the right question to ask. They know what's happened. They're there in the empty tomb. And so from the angel's perspective, hey, it's clear what's gone on here. Jesus is alive. This is what he predicted. I mean, it's done. Why are you crying? It's interesting in Mary's response. It's actually not that Jesus is dead. Notice what she says in verse 13. Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. There's that distance language again. They've taken him away, and I I don't know where they've taken his body. Yes, of course, she's sad that he's dead, but the greatest part of her struggle right now is that he's gone. He's missing. Her last comfort was to at least see his body. She had come to probably anoint him with more spices and oil now now being the third day from his death. But he's gone, and so she's weeping. Now, verse 14, we can assume she, she must have heard something. I mean, of course, her conversation with them really isn't done, but, but she turns around, and there's Jesus standing there, but she doesn't know it's him. This is called dramatic irony, when the reader is just watching something happen and just waiting for the character to find out, right? We were just on the edge of our seat. Oh, Mary, it's him, but she doesn't know. And so there's Jesus and she doesn't know and Jesus speaks to her woman, why are you weeping? It's the same question again, weeping comes up in the text, why are you weeping? And then a follow-up question, the same question he asked the guards twice when they came to arrest him here in John. And we don't know whether Mary was there. It's possible she was following from a distance. Maybe even that question would have triggered her memory. Just to think back a few days earlier, also in a garden, when he was was arrested and he asked the guards, Whom are you seeking? Now here too, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Mary assumes he's the gardener. And so she says to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Again, where is he? I will take him away. There's these distance words. Where is my Lord? He's so far from me. And the the deep irony here is that as she mourns his death and his distance, there he is standing in front of her alive and right next to her. Her grief is all a matter of perspective. And so he draws her out with these questions. Woman, why are you weeping? Now, it's interesting that John inserts this little comment that she supposes him to be the gardener. And we don't know uh, all of the reasons that John points this out, why, uh, why he would have uh, included this detail. I mean, he could have just said, well, he, he just, she just thought he was somebody else. She didn't recognize him, Right. But Mary thought he was the gardener, and John inserts that detail for us. And I think it's part of a thread that John's been unfolding, that his arrest, his death, his burial, and his resurrection all take place in a garden. And here is the gardener. One commentator pointed out that maybe this is John's way of saying that now the true master of the garden is now In the garden, he's one, and the true gardener has arrived. And begin to draw parallels, even with Adam. Do you realize that was Adam's job as well? In the beginning, in the first garden, Adam was the gardener. And so, as we make this comparison, we can consider how the first Adam, the first gardener, was assigned the job, but he failed, and he ended up cursing the land. (laughs) The second Adam The true and better Adam, the true gardener, is the one who lifts the curse and will one day heal the land. The first gardener brought death into the world, but the second gardener conquered death and lives forevermore. The first gardener made his labor more difficult by adding thorns and thistles, so he never finished his work when he died. The first gardener, Jesus, finished his work. He cried, it is finished from the cross and rose again from the grave. Praise God for the second gardener. As Mary turns and sees this unknown gardener there, she explains to him that she's willing to take the body if, she'll, if he'll just tell her where it is. And you can sort of imagine Mary kind of turning and looking, just, just tell me where you've placed the body and, and I'll take it away. And so it's almost while she's looking that Jesus speaks her name. We don't know exactly his tone of voice, but we're right to imagine one of care and affection for one of his followers, Mary. Mary. She hears the voice, the one who calls her by name, And she turns to him and there sees her Lord and she calls him Rabbi. And John gives us the original Aramaic, which is the language they likely would have been speaking to one another and now translated into Greek and then to English for us today. Rabbi it means teacher or even my teacher. This is what she likely would have called him many times as one of his followers, the teacher, my teacher. So there Mary is before her Lord. He's alive. (laughs) The the death has been solved with life. The distance has been solved with closeness. There he is, right there, standing next to her. He was there the whole time. Her perspective changes. Her weeping is replaced with joy as she turns to see her Lord. There's something else, though, we want to think about here. Jesus, all reveals all of this to Mary simply by calling her name. Which I think is precious as we consider this text. The voice of the Word that called Mary to faith. Did he not predict this is the way he would call his own to faith? In John 10, verses 3 and 4, we read this. To the shepherd the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear the shepherd's voice. He calls His own sheep by name and leads them out. And when He brings out His own sheep, He goes before them and the sheep follow Him for they know His voice. Or in John 18, 37, Jesus says to Pilate, You say rightly that I am a king for this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice voice. And so here Mary in the garden is called by name. And Jesus opens the blindness of her unbelief to see Jesus, the risen Lord. I don't think his appearance is any different here. In fact, in just a few hours, the disciples will see his scars. He hasn't changed. It's that Mary has been blinded by her own assumptions, by her unbelief, by her heart, that she's closed up and darkened because she's just lost all hope in her grief. And Jesus just gently draws her out. Mary, Mary. She hears the voice of her shepherd. alive and he's not distant he's here the other gospels tell us john doesn't the other gospels tell us that at this point mary gets down and grasps the feet of jesus and worships him and the other women that had come with her were there as well and they're worshiping the lord who is not only alive but he's there he's there that's what makes jesus statement all the more interesting in verse 17 Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. And then he gives her some instructions Do not cling to me. Now, again, we should be picturing Mary down on her hands and knees. Holding and maybe even kissing the feet of Jesus, so excited that her Lord is alive and there, and she's grasping extra hard, maybe even you can imagine, probably in the sense of, oh, don't ever leave my sight again. <laughs> Wherever you go, I'm following. I don't want to be distant from you ever again. And that's when Jesus says, do not cling to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. What does Jesus mean by these words? Well, it's not just a a command to stop touching him. That's not what this means at all. Clinging is a good translation of it because they're they're holding on to him. And it's almost as if she's experienced this distance from Jesus and she just doesn't want him to leave her presence any longer. She just, just stay. Just don't go anywhere. (laughs) And Jesus is reminding her of the plan of God. Remember, this is the whole theme of the farewell discourse death, resurrection, ascension. But don't forget the purpose of the ascension. Do you remember how many times Jesus unfolded that for the disciples? He said to them, It is to your advantage that I go away. For when I go, I will send to you another helper, another comforter, another advocate, the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is actually going to explain to her how he's drawing her into an even closer relationship than she's ever experienced before. Because right now, Jesus is restricted himself to one body in one place at one time. So here, right now, he can only be close to Mary and whatever whatever other women are there with her. And, and even then, He could only be close to however many disciples could gather around Him. And how many times in Jesus' ministry did He have these problems, right? Where the, 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 the people would gather in close and He'd even have to get into a boat and distance Himself from them so He could speak to all of them. So what Jesus is doing is He's drawing all of His followers into a close relationship with Him. Notice how He signifies this in the rest of His statement to Mary. He gives her instructions, go to my brethren. This is actually the first time in the Gospel of John that Jesus refers to the other disciples as brethren. And the word includes siblings, brothers and sisters. He he tells Mary to go tell the followers something, but he calls them brethren, brothers and sisters. Something's different now. They've been drawn into the family of God. By his death and resurrection, they now have the right to become God's children. They're in the family of God, brothers and sisters. But that's not it. He says, Go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. They have the same relationship now with the Father that Jesus has with the Father. He, he told them this would happen during the farewell discourse as a part of his departure. And so now he's telling them, I'm ascending to the Father, to my Father and your father. They're in. They're in the family of God. They're his brothers and sisters. And he's ascending to their father as well. And then finally, the final phrase, and to my God and your God. Jesus, by his death, resurrection, and ascension, is bringing them into close relationship with God, their brothers and sisters. God is their God. God is their father, just as he is for the Lord Jesus Christ. And they relate to God just as Jesus relates to the Father. As one commentator points out, what needs to stop is not a particular act of touching Jesus, but a misplaced reliance on the physical presence of Jesus. The body of Jesus and His location need to be redefined in light of His death, resurrection, and ascension, as well as the coming of the Spirit. Jesus is drawing them into a closer relationship with Him and the Father than they could ever have imagined. So think of this transition for Mary. Not only is Jesus dead and missing, her only source of comfort, his body, is gone. And now that he's appeared, she thinks things are back to normal. He's alive and he's here. I'm holding on for dear life. <laughs> but back to normal isn't the goal. Better is the goal. Closer is the goal. Even greater joy is the goal. This is why Jesus died and rose and ascended to the Father. He didn't die so that only Mary could be close to Him again. He died so that every follower could be closer to Him than ever before. Through His Spirit, Jesus' presence isn't limited to one place and time. He is in and with every follower So in verse 18, Mary does what she's told. She shares what she has seen. She's seen the Lord, and she passes along her teaching to the other followers. What does all of this signify? It represents an incredible change. Mary's weeping was highlighted in the beginning, probably to remind the readers of John 16, verses 19 through 23. And you can just turn to those verses with me from the farewell discourse, John 16, 19 through 23. Remember, in this passage, Jesus had used this phrase, a little while and you will see me, a little while and you will not see me, because I go to the Father. Okay? And so we have some further discussion of this, beginning in verse 19. Now, Jesus knew that they desired to ask Him, and He said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come, but as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. And then in verses 23 and 24, he explains how they'll have a new relationship with the Father. So here we are, a little while, and he was gone, and now they see him. And again, a little while, and he will depart. They're brought into the family of God. They'll receive the Spirit of God. They'll be brought into the closest relationship with God possible, indwelt by his very Spirit. This is what Jesus has accomplished by his death death resurrection and ascension. Weeping is turned to joy. Death is turned to life. Jesus' absence is turned not only into physical presence, but closeness with God in the family of God. And Jesus, through His death and resurrection, fulfills their joy in an even greater way than they ever could have imagined. I remember watching a funny interaction between a brother and a sister. I may or may not have even participated in this interaction. In the home, the brother had done something to uh, hurt the sister, not physically, but uh, unbeknownst to the brother, emotionally. And so the sister was crying, weeping, it could be said, uh, over this emotional hurt that had taken place. And the brother was off doing something else. At some point, the brother had come to the mother in the home and said to the mother, I don't understand why she's still crying over this. About that time, the sister received a phone call from her closest friend. And so my mom, excuse me, the mother... uh, The mother took the phone over to the sister in the home and uh, handed it to her, and the sister's countenance just lifted. And she began to talk to her close friend. Oh, hi, how are you? It's so good to hear from you. Yeah, we're doing doing good, you know, all this fun and talk and all this. And so the brother began to think, I would assume, that uh, this had all passed, and so all was well now that they had talked and she was cheery and so on and so forth. Well, she got done with the phone conversation and hung up and handed it back to the mother in the home and began weeping again. <laughs> and the brother scratched his head. I'm not sure I understand what's happening here, the brother said to himself, <laughs> potentially. Our emotions are strong feelings, aren't they? They're difficult things to wade through and to understand and Here Mary is weeping by the tomb, her grief having closed in her heart to hope. Now walking in unbelief, she assumes that the body must have been stolen. And even there when she turns and sees the Lord, it must be a gardener. And then calls her by name, opens her eyes to see the truth. Jesus is alive. Friend, I don't know what difficulty has begun to close your heart to the truth of God's Word. But hear the voice of the risen Lord today call to you from this text. (laughs) Lance, Mary, Peter, John, listen. I'm alive. I rose again from the grave. You don't have to be concerned that I've left because with my departure, I've sent my spirit is in you. I've gone to my Father and to your Father. (laughs) You're in. You're in the family of God and His brothers and sisters of Christ. If you've trusted in Him as Savior, then His Spirit is in you. And friend, you can't be any closer to God than that, to have Him in you by His Spirit. And so Jesus says to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And he could say that to every believer with promise because the Spirit is in everyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Do you believe that Jesus is alive? There's more evidence for the resurrection than, than most historical events that we see as true. There's More evidence for it. And if indeed he rose from the dead, then maybe his claims are all true. Maybe He really is God in the flesh. Maybe He really did die for your sins so you could have life everlasting. Believe. Have your mourning turned to joy. Does the Lord seem distant today? He's not. It's all a matter of perspective. Like with Mary, He's right there calling you to believe. And if you have believed, then He's even closer than ever before. He's in you. You're His brother or sister. You call on the Father just as He does. You're in. He's near. Always. You see, the resurrection turns our weeping to joy. The risen Lord calls us to believe today and to have our Weeping turned into joy. Our mourning to turn into rejoicing. It may be that you're facing suffering. The resurrection reminds us that through our suffering we can look to His eternal reward. It means something. Suffering is not just empty. It doesn't just pass the time in this life. The resurrection proves that suffering even has a purpose. It leads to to something it leads to reward and a day when you will have every tear wiped away by the one who conquered sin and death the resurrection gives hope in the midst of evil When we look around us and we see evil taking place seemingly without control, we remember that Jesus rose again. He conquered the greatest evil there is. He is in control. And there's coming a day when all evil will be judged and put down forevermore. It's coming. He will do it. The resurrection proves it. And it gives us hope in a future restoration. The resurrection helps us with persecution. When we suffer for the name of Christ, we recognize that there is life after death. That it is not about this life, but this life is about the next life. And if I can partake in the sufferings of Christ for the glory of His name, so be it. The resurrection gives hope in our disease. That all aspects of the curse in this fallen world the curse that the first gardener brought into this world, all aspects of that curse will be reversed and banished from the earth, including disease, gone. The same one who wipes away every tear will tell us there is no more death and disease. It's done. Whatever disease you face, if Christ is your Savior, you will one day be healed. You will. The resurrection proves it. There is life after death. See, He turns our weeping to joy because we look beyond this life to eternity to the life that He has secured and sealed with His death and resurrection. And as we go through this life in all its trials and troubles, He has turned our weeping into joy because He's given us His Spirit to aid us through this life. The Helper and Advocate sent by the Son from the Father so that whatever we face, we are always near to Him. That whatever we face, we can always call on Him as Father. This is how the resurrection turns our weeping into joy. Friends, look to the risen Lord. See the empty tomb. See the risen Lord. Hear Him call your name even today and believe. Let Him turn your weeping into joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the risen Christ. We thank You that the Good Shepherd indeed calls His sheep by name. And even as we are gathered today, we recognize there may be some here today who have not yet heard the gospel and believed. And we pray that now, even under the hearing of the gospel, the the message of your word, that faith indeed would come by hearing, that you would bring dead souls to life even today by the power of the gospel, that we would see the strength of the risen Lord at work in our body today that we who have trusted in Christ would walk in newness of life by the power of your Spirit who dwells in us, that even when we feel distant, we would take you at your word and trust that your Spirit is in us, that we are always close and we can always call on you as Father because of your Son. And then as a people who know that Christ is alive, help us to look to the resurrection with hope. Help us to live this life in light of the next life. Help us to set our affection and our treasure in the realm to come and that we would hope in our future King. We praise You for Jesus and we thank You that He's alive. In His name we pray. Amen.